Welcome to Film School Dropout. My name is Ben Friedman, host of this show, and I hope you've been listening, but if not, I'm glad you're here for this episode, Raging Bull. What is there to say about Raging Bull to introduce it? I mean, it is one of the most famous movies of all time. I have it here, Criterion Collection 4K. It's one of the most famous, most acclaimed movies of all time. It features probably the signature Robert De Niro performance written by Paul Schrader. I started saying directed, but realized I was trying to say written. So it's written by Paul Schrader, directed by Martin Scorsese. This comes out after New York, New York, which is a kind of just a big kind of flop for Scorsese, especially critically compared to Taxi Driver. Comes out with The Lost Waltz in between this, which is a documentary musical film, uh, concert film, I should say. And then Raging Bull happens and it's all history from there. So who better else to talk history than with Isaac Feldberg, who, if you get, the guys do not know Isaac Feldberg, will get ready for a treat because he's one of the smartest, one of the just most insightful film critics working today. He's insightful, he is knowledgeable, he's fast with, he just is an extraordinary writer, and he is a great just explainer of concepts. He has just an aura of him that when talking with him, I'll be completely honest, I was pretty overwhelmed where I'm just like, I gotta step up my game because this guy's just, he's wiping the floor with me. I, he made me bring out my best and I hope it's my best. For those of you who, again, don't know Isaac, he is a film critic. Uh, you can find him at rogerebert.com, Pace Magazine, The Playlist, Boston Globe. He's all over. Follow him. He is an exceptionally bright young gentleman and I'm so honored that he would give me two hours to talk Raging Bull. It really means the world uh, to me. And get ready because he comes in swinging and I'm just trying to follow pace. So thank you, Isaac, for joining me on this episode. And we're going to be right back with Raging Bull. movie channel today i am joined for is it the martin scorsese masterpiece is it his best film it is probably one of his most notorious i'm talking raging bull today i got my criterion 4k right here i'm talking 1980s raging bull uh the movie that is probably the quintessential to some maybe the crowning achievement of scorsese's career i am joined today by isaac feldberg a Chicago-based film writer, writer for RogerEbert.com, Filmmaker Magazine, and The Playlist, uh, film critic at large. Isaac, thank you so much for joining me today for Raging Bull. Thank you for having me, Ben. I'm excited about this. Are, I, I, I had a, some just like, I had some ideas for where this podcast was going to go, but I guess where I wanted to start with is just kind of admitting something to you is I haven't seen Raging Bull in well over a decade 
I am 25. I think I first saw this film when I was 13 or 14, and yeah. I haven't revisited it since. So I was really curious going into this show what it was going to be like. We are recording this episode Saturday, September uh, 2nd, 9.14 a.m. PST, and I watched this movie 6 a.m. Uh, this morning, which is a pretty bizarre thing to do to wake up and start your weekend with that. But Isaac, I guess kind of the question that I wanted to just kind of kickstart this conversation with was, one, not only what is your relationship with Martin Scorsese, which is already a loaded question, but specifically, what is Raging Bull to you in your own words? Wow, that's that's a big question to start us off with, even though I am two hours behind you, so I have no excuse for for answering it in any kind of groggy way. But I, I think to break that down, I would say that Martin Scorsese is one of the sort of reigning filmmakers in my mind who is capable of fusing his personal interests with a vast array of subject matter and doing so in a way that is passionate, that is incredibly well composed. Uh, he is so capable of translating these passions and agonies that he has onto the screen. And within that, he is one of the foremost Catholic filmmakers uh, who is still working currently. And, and you, I think that Catholicism, that upbringing of his really permeates so much of the work that he does. And I think in, th in thinking about Raging Bull, uh, you've got this film that represents the agony portion of that, the passion as well, of course, but this was a film that was made at a very dark and dangerous time in Scorsese's life. I mean, he, he was brought this material while he was recovering from a cocaine overdose, and he was just gripped by a lot of demons at this point in time. And I think that he could not have related to this character of Jake LaMotta at any other time in his life as, uh, as exuberantly and as deeply as he did at the point that Raging Bull was created. And I think that when you see this movie, you see Scorsese at his most passionate, at his most pained, and he's channeling so many of these existential questions of how to be a man, how to deal with inner violence, how to deal with addiction and impulse. Um, and it's just, it's all up there on the screen. So I, I think to me, when I look at Raging Bull, I see Scorsese reflected back in a very direct and harrowing way. And that's something that I think, it, it's very key to my relationship with him as a filmmaker because of that connection that I find between his life and the screen. I think you hit the nail on the head with that idea. Uh, and it's especially important to note that Scorsese has a really rough end of his 70s. After the acclaim of Taxi Driver, which I believe is 75, 77, he follows it up with New York, New York, which is definitely not the critical appraise uh, that Taxi Driver received. It's actually prayer, uh, fairly maligned. Uh, over the most recent years, it's certainly kind of had a reappreciation. Uh, towards itself, but it's still definitely not considered one of his higher moments in his career. Follows that up in 1978 with what you mentioned, which was this cocaine overdose, along with what is maybe one of the best, if not best, 
uh, concert films of all time with The Last Waltz, right. uh, which comes out that year. The My kind of relationship with Raging Bull all just stems from the fact that, as you said, like this is kind of Scorsese to a degree put on screen. And it's also why I have challenges with this movie. Again, not saying that I don't love this movie because this is actually one of the most perfect biography movies you will ever see. It's just that I there is a weird element when I'm watching this movie where I just I struggle not only revisiting it, I also struggle knowing what an artist has to be going through to yeah. achieve this art. Mm -hmm. This isn't the art of somebody who is completely well at that time. There are certain levels and exposures that this movie does and reflects on that is actually quite painful and it's quite maybe even to some degree perverse and yet at the same time I'm so drawn to it and it's also focusing on an aspect of a it's it's always just hard to watch someone kind of suffering mm -hmm. and that is to some degree I feel that suffering that Scorsese is putting into this character and it's it's one of the few instances that I have with that phenomenon. I don't know if you can relate to that. I just, when watching this movie, I was just like, this is kind of grueling for me to get through in a good way. And also in a way that I'm just like, I, it's going to be hard for me to revisit it again. There are some Scorsese films that I can watch endlessly, even really tough Scorsese films. I think Taxi Driver is actually pretty endlessly fascinating and rewatchable. I just... Raging Bull isn't that for me. And it's that love that I have for this and the respect and audacity that this film has on display mixed with the challenge of I I I empathize with Scorsese at this time and just kind of feel heartbroken for him that he has to kind of wrestle this demon out of him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I think that that's completely true. I mean, when you look at the relationship between Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, as much as they're both portraits of alienation and of violence and of that impulse that we're talking about, ta Taxi Driver was this tremendous success. It was this film that really elevated uh, Scorsese's name and it, it gave him new tools and new resources and a lot more money to work with. And that really, you know, was able to uh, lead him towards something that failed in the way that New York, New York did. But but that was a period of time that was very painful to use that word for Scorsese as well. I mean, he was dealing after New York, New York with not only just the commercial uh, failure of that movie, but critical failures too. There was this point for him where you just, he, I don't think he fully knew whether or not he was going to be able to make another movie. And there's a lot going on in his personal life at that time. You also mentioned The Last Waltz and, you know, his relationship with Robbie Robertson. God bless him. He passed uh, a few weeks ago, but one of his longtime collaborators and, you know, the, the two of them, their relationship feels very key to unlocking Raging Bull in a way, given what happened after The Last Waltz, where he really left his family and just moved in with Scorsese on Mulholland Drive. And they started this legendary cocaine and sex and, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll binge that many of the of those kind of filmmakers at that time were embodying. 
And it just, it, it ended with him in the hospital. It, it, you know, it brought him to death's door. And I think that when you think about the mindset that Scorsese was in, when De Niro brings him the Jake LaMotta story, brings him the idea of doing this, because of course, as you, I think you maybe mentioned this earlier, this very much started with De Niro wanting to do this character and wanting to do this movie. But Scorsese, I, I think he was laid low, but he had also tasted these highs of success in so many different ways. And I think he came onto that set with that rise and fall narrative in his head and the question of where he was in his own career at that point. And so I think that it goes a lot of ways into Raging Bull. It goes into the narrative of this character and it goes into the formal adventurousness of this film because, you know, I, I think there's a lot to Raging Bull. You, you talked about how uncomfortable it can be to watch where I just don't think that he thought he was going to get another chance to yeah. work in this way. It does feel like a director who's making his last film. Like mm -hmm. some degree, it's like everything that he's ever wanted to explore and everything that is so interesting about his career pre-Raging Bull and post-Raging Bull. See, even yeah. like reflections that we see in Silence and the Irishman, uh, mm -hmm. his two latest films pre-Killers of the Flower Moon, like those are just, you see everything that a man is trying to convey in one story in one man and it's a difficult task to convey and we talk about Scorsese and I'd be I'd be I'd want to make sure I should say that like there are three kind of holy trinity collaborators on this movie we have obviously Martin Scorsese we have Robert De Niro who I believe gets the script back in 1973 Basically, I think he's reading it on the set of The Godfather Part Two. I want to say that something I read, but I'm not positive. The timelines wouldn't match that. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, and this is a little bit more complicated because what exactly his writing role on this film was, it's kind of debated to some degree, but it's Paul Schrader, who is credited as the screenwriter along uh of this film, along with, uh, I'm blanking on the other name for this, I'm pulling Marduk it up Martin. right now. Well, yeah. who was it? Marduk Martin. Yeah, along yeah. with Martin. And, you know, Schrader comes in for, it sounds like essentially a page one rewrite of this story. Mm -hmm. uh, his script is not fully realized in this movie. He has some really out there ideas and scenes that De Niro and him kind of clashed on. And ultimately, I think the De Niro version of it is probably more, but it is this holy trinity, and excuse my bad pun, but like of collaborators coming together and making something. It's the push and pull of filmmaking that makes film, I think, all the better. I don't think this film works if it is all fully Scorsese's demons, all fully De Niro's interest, and specifically interest in older actors like Brando and all Paul Schrader's. Paul Schraderisms, uh, for lack of a better word, on a character, to say the least. Schrader. So he comes in later uh, in the process of writing the script for Raging Bull. It starts really with that book, which is Jake LaMotta's memoir. And to talk about, you know, just you were mentioning the number of collaborators who were involved in this film. And, you know, you've even got like John Turturrow in the background of a certain of a, of a mm. scene that like, Talk about Italian-American excellence. It is this wave of filmmakers. They are hungry. They're up and coming. They are telling this story of 
someone who was a very fascinating figure to that community and to their community. Um, and I think that you can see a lot of the uh, the way that Raging Bull comes out of mean streets in that sense, and in terms of mm -hmm. the world that they were depicting and the characters, and especially the spiritual and emotional tensions of that community. Um, and so, and that's where Schrader is such an interesting con contributor for it, given his work on Taxi Driver with the what he's become known for, that man in the room sort of mm -hmm. filmmaking of someone who is locked in a psychological and emotional and a spiritual crisis with themselves, which I think is a very compelling way to look at Raging Bull as well. It is that kind of story. Um, but the script really starts with Mardik Martin spending two and a half years doing research into Jake LaMotta. And it's amazing to look at the film uh, and look at how it really is these flashes these vignettes of a life and mm. it, it does not show the entire Jake LaMotta story it moves through time and it shows specific sequences that key us into him but the original script that they were working with was much longer it was much bigger it was like there was so much more that got ended up getting cut out of the Raging Bull script but initially it was like you know Jake as a child, like Jake's relationship with his father, like it, it goes this, this gamut. It was a much more of a conventional, you know, birth to death biopic sort of approach. And Schrader had a lot of contributions there as well and other things that he wanted to add in. I don't know if you've heard the story about the scene in the prison. Yeah, uh, that was going to be one of the main notes I took away from Schrader's script. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, talk about that for a minute, because I think it, that's, yeah. Uh, as best as I can explain it, as I remember the antidote goes, Paul Schrader initially, in his Raging Bull draft, had this scene that was the scene where Jake gets arrested, and I believe the year is 1957. Uh, when we see him in the cell after he's thrown in by the two guards, in the movie as we have it now is him having a breakdown and punching the walls and screaming. The original scene as Schrader writes it and as he intended it to be was Jake as a kind of lowest point moment begins masturbating in a prison cell and then during mm -hmm. that is trying to basically you know envision something but all that he can envision is him beating his wife. And that's kind of the sexual arousal that he is getting it. That may be a little off. I'm, I don't remember the antidote perfectly. I know Schrader has spoken uh, about it, but that is at the very least the gist of that scene, which is a pretty disturbing scene in an already disturbing movie. And De Niro fought for the idea that Jake needs to basically be trapped in his own machoism. Uh, he needs to just be a weapon, essentially just trapped in a room and now forced to kind of just all that violence that he has put out to the world and to his loved ones is now contained in him. And only he can physically harm himself, which is the scene of him just bashing a wall. Well, I'm not that guy, right? He's he's not that guy. Like, mm -hmm. that's the 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 whole thing of that that I found so compelling to to learn about is, you know, is Schrader wanted to express sort of the sexual impotence of mm. a character like that and tie it more directly 
to him him trying and failing to masturbate in that moment. And Scorsese didn't like that because it it isn't just about his sexual sort of um, shortcomings, his his inability to really measure up to the standard that he has for himself in that way. Um, though his obsessive jealousy towards his wife is one is still one of the key parts of the movie. I think you know by leading that specific side of his torment in that sequence it actually boxes you more into this character who doesn't really know who he is or where he comes from and has been embedded with this kind of feeling that he doesn't deserve the life he's had, despite every step of that being something that was a decision that he made, that was an impulse that he followed. And I, I just think that, you know, that scene where, you know, he's hitting the wall and he just you don't even really know why. I don't think he knows why, but he stops hitting the wall. He stops punishing himself in that moment. And it, it's one of those scenes I think is maybe where Scorsese kind of cracked what he wanted to do with Raging Bull. Yeah, the key to this movie is, I think, Catholic guilt in so much of it. And I think this that scene is kind of, to a degree, it's almost repentance. It's him trying to, exercise a demon out of him uh in some ways where it is him literally trying to force the ugliness and combat it the only way that he's ever known how to do mm -hmm. in his life this whole movie is filled with christian symbolic uh symbolism sorry symbology sim symbolism mm -hmm. and one of my favorite shots in this movie and i think it's probably the the defining moment of raging bulls cinematography is the last sugar ray fight uh i believe the year is 1951 and it's the scene where he's just up against the ropes his arms are up like this uh horizontal watching it you're like that is very much the look of christ on the cross mm. and it's this guy just sugar ray just beating the living crap out of him and de niro as jake just taking it and almost like it is him to some degree the ring is his Catholic church and this is his confession box and everything that happens to him. It's the reason he can't get knocked down is because he needs to face penance. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's a powerful idea. It's a, it, he's hmm. either, he's either Jesus on the, on the cross or he's someone who's spent his whole life thinking that he is Jesus on the cross. And yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that's like, I think the the tension between those two ideas is, is something that is very, I think, key to Scorsese as a filmmaker. It's something that he even pokes fun at in a lot of his his films, like, you know, Wolf of Wall Street as well, with this guy who just, I think his characters, to a degree, to this Catholic guilt idea that you're talking about, are very much martyrs of their own making. Yeah, it's especially, like, prevalent with this collaboration between Schrader, De Niro, uh, uh, Scorsese, the taxi driver is completely filled with that idea, the same idea that you presented of a man who believes himself to be something that he's not. King mm -hmm. of Comedy is another guy who's just in full belief of himself being something grander than in reality he is. And it's a display of male toxicity. It is a display of imperfection. It's also just a full-on display of someone refusing to get help and that is this whole struggle it's 
a really fascinating performance i from de niro i i I'll, I'll be honest, I wrote this piece a few weeks ago for the magazine that I write for, one of the magazines that I write for, and the editor asked me to just write about my 12 favorite films, or the 12 best films as I saw them, and I was listing, what I, I knew Scorsese was going to make the list somehow, and the answer that I ended up putting on, I was trying to think, I'm like, do I put Goodfellas on? I love silence, like, which one do I end up putting on? And I actually ended up putting on The King of Comedy for mm. what I just believe to be Scorsese's most cynical film, De Niro's most deranged performance. And then while rewatching Raging Bull uh, this time around, what I was just absolutely in shock with, with the De Niro performances, the De Niro performance in juxtaposition with Travis Bickle, with Rupert Pupkin, is the willingness as a performer to just go fully ugly. There is nothing savoring, savoring about De Niro in this performance. It is such a raw, authentic, so violently disturbing of a performance that it's, it's one of those ones where you watch it. And again, your kind of idea of when watching is like, is De Niro okay? Is this guy like, is, is he all the way with us right now? And I don't think he is in Raging Bull. I think this is truly the case of a performer who is so bought into this character that he literally did just become Jake for a few months. It's possible. I mean, that's hard to say. I, the, the degree to which his method acting really, you know, overtakes his life. That's something that probably De Niro's family and friends will have an interesting perspective on in a way that, you know, we can't really judge even from watching Raging Bull. But you certainly feel it in the physical transformation of the character. It's a terrifying performance. I completely agree with you about, you know, just how staggering it is to watch him in those moments. I think even more than when he's in the ring, when he latches on to some piece of dialogue, something that someone says to him and he twists it and then he heart and he, amplifies it and it becomes the only thing he can think about he's a very obsessive thinker which is something that very much plays to that character's benefit in the ring but De Niro really shows you how he can never turn that off which I think is a lot of what you're you're seeing there is just the consistency of the psychosis of this character um I I want to mention this we were talking about collaborators on the screenplay um and Norman Mailer is not someone who I think is in any way really credited, but he was associated with the project and he looked at multiple drafts of the script, especially mm. in that longer uh, stage. And he was fascinated by Lamada, as many people were. He was kind of this American figure in a lot of way, his a lot of ways, his rise and fall. But when he met Lamada at this bar, um, and he was like horsing around, they were getting drunk, and Mailer said, I could have been a boxer, right? I could have been a boxer. And uh, Lamada like says back to him, you could never have been a boxer. You're not disturbed enough. Mm. And I love that story, that anecdote, um, not because I necessarily agree with Lamada, but because I know that Lamada agrees with that. Like he, mm. he thinks that, you know, this skill that he had, this ability to um, inflict and take punishment in a certain way, whether or not it was a religious penance as it is in the Raging Bull film, or whatever hole that filled for him in his life, 
I think there's a lot of self-delusion across all of Scorsese's film, but within that character and in the way that De Niro plays him, you can really see the moments where he is listening, but only so that he can then disconnect from reality and pursue his own grudge, his own vendetta. This is a guy who's like, he's always fighting a wall, even when he's sitting at the kitchen table. Yeah, it's this fascinating character study of Jake, who is this figure in boxing that is well known because of Raging Bull now and mm -hmm. kind of that transformation, that life that he lives. And it's also kind of this weird thing where it's just like everyone else around him becomes big boxers. I mean, Sugar Ray is arguably top five most famous boxers of all time. And they had six fights, I believe, in total uh, throughout their entire career. Jake only wins one of them. And there's a scene in this where Pesci uh, kind of humorously says, like, oh, the only reason he won is because he's going to war, like he's being drafted, like they were always going to give it to that guy. But it is this exploration of who this guy thinks he is in Jake, who De Niro believes Jake to be, which is this is a guy who has everything not even given to him, but he has everything at his disposal. And he's this acclaimed fighter. He has this unique style that becomes quintessential in boxing. I mean, the idea of a slugger who can just take punches is very much like in the belief of uh, that's a style of boxing now. And he, you know, he kind of is front and center of that movement. And yet it's, he can never get out of his own way. He's given every opportunity in this movie. And what I love about Raging Bull, and I think the brilliance of it, is there are multiple times, like Jake is a extremely acclaimed boxer during his days. He is the champion for a handful of years, defends the belts, I believe, multiple times. Again, not positive on my boxing history, but from my understanding, he's a pretty acclaimed boxer uh, as I was kind of rushing up on him. And yet his legacy is kind of faulted by the fact that he himself couldn't get out of his legacy. It's the case of just, he was so self-destructive in the ring. Yeah. I mean, it takes a mentality to be the guy who has Lamada's fighting technique, which is literally to let the other person hit you in the face until they get tired and mm. then go after them. Like he is so confident in his ability to take the punishment before he dishes it out. It speaks to someone who really um, either sees themselves as a martyr or just sees themselves as a bull, you know, as someone yeah. who, who is an animal. I, I think that one of the best scenes in the movie is that extended sort of tracking shot where you're following um, Jake into the ring and he has this leopard um, kind of uh, the covering on him. And he's like, he truly is pouncing. He can't wait to get in there. It's like the, the, the beast is out. And he's being led to this one place where actually the way that he lives his life makes sense. Mm. And it's so interesting to, to consider what you're talking about in terms of Jake LaMotta's life, because he was someone who found the place where he could be the kind of person that he was or the kind of fighter that he was. But he couldn't find any place for that outside of the ring. And mm. that, I think, is one of the tensions of the of the memoir that he wrote later in life that was the initial material which went a lot further 
than Raging Bull does in depicting, for example, the abuse against his wife that mm. he that he dished out. Like, there's a, a part in the book where he rapes his wife, and Scorsese didn't want that in the movie. He uh, also with his first wife, he didn't um, want to include scenes that had him brutally beating her. Because, you know, him flipping the table, you understand what a violent house that is just in that one motion that he does. And I, I think that Scorsese didn't want the movie to get caught up on that. And But I think that, you know, there is this element to which it is, I mean, I mean it, it, it's shadow boxing. It, it's this guy who, mm-hmm. like, cannot beat his opponents quickly enough because they're everywhere. Because they're every, it's everyone who could ever doubt him, could ever betray him, could ever be close to him. And and so I think that there's a a side of that fighting technique, a side of that um, acceptance of punishment uh, with the understanding that you'll then dish it out that is very key to understanding the character and key to understanding the film. And it's key to understanding Scorsese's connection too, as someone who at that point was... Um, you know, also his personal life was completely um, imploding at that point when Raging Bull was coming together. He, his relationship with Liza Minnelli had ended. Um, he was married to Julia Cameron at that time as well. He was completely destroying a lot of the happinesses in his life and and putting a lot of it up his nose. He was, you know, really um, significantly ill in a lot of ways. And I, I think that he put a lot of that death drive and that impulse towards self-destruction that you're mentioning into the film at a time when, by the way, like this is the other piece of it. And this is all at a time right after Rocky. Yeah, that was the, what my next point. Everyone's looking at boxing movies and he's like, you know, oh, there's two sides of it. It's like, how do I differentiate? But also how do I get at something a little bit more existential about what this, what this boxing thing actually is for this guy? Yeah, it's so key to understanding Raging Bull is the fact that Rocky comes out in 75, I believe, 75, 76, one of those two years, mid-70s. And Rocky Balboa's fighting style is the exact same as Lamotta's. It is get hit in the face, wear out your opponent by just taking the most brutal of punishment and then persevering to win at the end by just outlasting. It's and what's so interesting is in Rocky, it's a celebration. It's the going the distance, the perseverance. And that's right. how Stallone plays that character. In Raging Bull, it's the self-destruction of a guy who actually wants to get hit in the face. I think that's the difference between Jake and Rocky. Rocky just accepts that he has to get hit in the face to win. To uh, Jake, to some degree, it's maybe even a fetish for him where he's just like, I have to get hit in the face. Like I have to do this. It needs to be something done because for him, sex is violent and it's the only place where he feels connected. I, I think that that's a, a key part of it. Uh, to, to your point, I think the, a lot of this movie is about a guy who's a fighter, but not a lover. And mm-hmm. Rocky is about that question of, can you be both a fighter and a lover? So one of them is this, you know, commercial crowd pleaser, and the other is one of the most harrowing character studies that came out of the 80s right at the beginning. And it it was like to to that point, I, I think that the the Madonna horror complex 
is absolutely a thing in the relationship between Jake and Vicky. Uh, it's also very prevalent at that time as well. It's very prevalent to just the attitudes of, of good old American masculinity at that, po at that point in time to have this, you know, the wife who bears your children and puts up with your abuse. And that's how you know you're a man. And there's a lot of violence in those communities that I think is very hereditary. I think this is a lot of the area where we get into what's implied by the film and the violence that is outside the frame in their upbringing and in just the the life in the neighborhood that they lived in and the people that they were around. Sully character, the mafia connections that are kind of lurking at the periphery of the of this family. Um, and but then you've also got this um you've got this connection for Scorsese as well where you know I think that he wants to put the violence between men and women into the background of every frame here I mean his mm -hmm. mother's cross is is the cross that hangs in their house that's Scorsese's mother's own cross it's like I think that he he wants to show the violence within this domestic home life in a way that is kind of like this is the prize that this character has won is this kind of life because of the way that he's approached it, but also because that's what you did. And that's, I think, something that never satisfies him. I found the quote specifically from Freud, and it goes, where such men love, they have no desire, and where they desire, they cannot love, which is to many degrees, and this is definitely something Schrader has talked about, that is the central tension in Raging Bull, and you really feel it. I, the aspect of this movie that we really haven't touched on and it's a good time to bring it up because of the family dynamics of this movie mm. is joe joe pesci as the brother uh and his manager joey joey that's the name this is a character that you understand how they're brothers and one just seems a little bit better adjusted but that same demon is in it there oh, are those violence outbursts that he has, specifically the scene where uh, uh, Jake's wife is in the club and Joey believes her to be flirting. Uh, and let me specify, it's Jake's second wife is in the club flirting. Joey believes her mm -hmm. uh, to be flirting and just attacks the guy in a just full-on fit of rage, classic Pesci, just small guy tough guy syndrome mm -hmm. and it's this moment where you realize like yeah that doesn't happen like jake isn't the oddball out in this family this is a family dynamic that has probably fueled with years and years and years of understanding this to be the norm and that is the norm specifically like if you look at the age of this movie which is the 19 40s and 50s when they are in their 20s and 30s. That means they're growing up post their fathers coming home from World War I, primarily. And that's the life they live. They There's so much PTSD explored, and in not exploring it or not getting it treated, it's the case of domestic violence is at an all-time high during post-war periods. You see it specifically during World War I, you see it high after World War II, and you definitely see it post-Vietnam. And that's all of these elements that Raging Bull is uh, exploring. We never see Jake or Joey's parents, but you know everything about their relationship 
just solely on how Jake and uh, Jake and Joey treat their partners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that if if you can if you can refine Raging Bull to an image, it is the image of Jake facing that prison cell wall with his mm. fists and twitching and just it's it's the twitch it, it's the impulse to hit it's it's like that desire that violence is something that to me and to i think a lot of people at this time is very associated with the sense of the father and is very associated with the violence that you learn growing up it's in him it's in as you're saying it's in joey as well and it's in those characters and i i think that relationship is something that is really fascinating that idea of the tension that builds between jake and joey because they are close he's it's the person who's closest to him in the entire world but at the same time it's this person who because he has that proximity is always within you know is within striking distance to put it that way and so joey you see, it's this wonderful performances between De Niro and Joe Pesci. And I know De Niro brought Pesci onto the project after having seen him in another smaller movie called The Public Eye. Scorsese was not familiar with him really before he was introduced by De Niro. Um, but to the the way that they're able to build up the in their scenes with each other, they're kind of going back and forth, their arguments, and the way that you can especially see for Pesci, he is always trying to gauge how close De Niro, how close Jake is to exploding. Mm. Um, and he is trying to calculate what jabs he can get in before he has to get out of the way. And that it's definitely one of those, those pieces of that puzzle, I think, for it. And also just to, on that point with uh, Joey and that character, I think it's worth noting that he was for many, in, in many senses, was Scorsese's way into Raging Bull, into how yeah. to tell the story. Because there were so many drafts of the script that had been put together that he was not in. Uh, the memoir and, you know, the other books about Jake LaMotta had used that like kind of prism of a friend relationship to... Um, to get at him and he didn't really understand that Scorsese didn't really understand how this person could have such visibility into the soul of Jake LaMotta as someone who did who just knew him as an acquaintance um and that's Schrader as well was Schrader's contribution was him digging around and finding papers that illuminated to them that Jake had a brother that was not widely known and so that was sort of where that character came in and I think that when you look at it through that lens, you can see this person who is like always trying to see Jake clearly, uh, knowing that Jake is blind in a lot of ways to everything that's going on. But he has his own frustrations with that too, because his life has to be lived um, around all this broken glass. And so th that's like one of the best parts of the film for me is just seeing De Niro and Pesci circle each other um they're really sparring the entire film in ways like yeah they they are in the boxing ring the entire film without ever actually being in the boxing ring in some scenes it's very clear that is the intention where it's just the scene where jake's just like hit me just just beat the crap out of me and i don't care and it's just like joey kind of being in a situation where you're like this isn't the first time jake's asked him to do 
like he's he's hesitant but he's like this this happens it's the kind of bull in a uh, china shop uh just something that will break everything in its way and joey understands his role is to be as best as he can a bull whisperer like okay i need to get this guy in as much control as i can while also knowing that this guy is completely unstable. And Joey's very much aware that his brother is not a safe person. He is so aware of how violent he can be. Again, it's the upbringing factor of this movie. And Mm -hmm. from my understanding, in the original Jake LaMotta book, Raging Bull, uh, from the early 70s, I don't think the brother is mentioned more than once or twice. Like, There's never the dynamic explored of he's actually... By and large, it seems like his manager during that period. What I also find so interesting, and it's this period of Martin Scorsese in the 1980s, and maybe it's consciously, maybe it's subconsciously, uh, who knows? But it is very important to note that when this film releases, when it gets the acclaim, when it's about to win, you know, handful of Oscars, I think two days before, John Hinckley Jr. shoots. Jodie Foster, or not? Sorry, not. Jesus, that's the horrible history of it. Uh, shoots President Reagan, Reagan in honor of Jody Jodie Foster, and uh, I, ma- I made an alternative timeline that is bizarre. But no, no that's uh, okay. I'm just glad I'm lucky. If now I feel very lucky, we got Silence of the Lambs. That's, yeah, exactly. They really recovered there. Um, it's, yeah, that that sort of question of media obsession and the question of just you know what someone would be compelled to do by you know seeing a movie like taxi driver that sort of positions that person i think very um unambiguously as a psychopath and as a violent um sort of monster in his own way and just a man in a box but i think that you know raging bull to what we were saying earlier is even more resoundingly clear about what scorsese and his collaborators think about this kind of guy. The aspect of it, though, that I find so fascinating, and it's one you touched on right there, is this media sensation of it. And Raging Bull, while it's not the king of comedy, where it's not like a shocking portrayal of what media sensation can do and how someone wants to fantasize about celebrity, Mm-hmm. Raging Bull does explore this idea. Maybe even it's like under the surface, but it does explore the idea of Jake almost does understand this is his public persona. And he's mm-hmm. to a degree embracing the role. And that's where the dangerous thing is. Like, is he Jake LaMotta if he is not a violent sociopath? Yeah. That's kind of the question that this movie explores because the audience eats up the fact that he's crazy think that there is, I mean, I think that public personas, I think that, you know, performance is a huge part of sports. It's, you know, as theatrical in its way as, as a play. And I think that, you know, Scorsese draws that line repeatedly in Raging Bull. I mean, and, and it's one of the parts of the origins of the film. I mean, there's a point in this very protracted development that we've been discussing where De Niro wanted to do a theatrical and film version of Raging Bull because it had such sort of that the world is a stage uh, mentality to it. I think the film also draws this link uh, where I think that Jake doesn't know who he is. 
unless he's being told who he is. Mm. And I think that in the ring where he's being watched, the film draws that link directly. One of the, the best edits of a film in the 80s where you get that smash cut from him saying that's entertainment to him getting slugged in the face. And, you know, it's, it is that element of the film that I think uh, really does endure as well when you were thinking about media is just that question of why people find this so compelling, why people find the sport of boxing so compelling and why people find people like Jake LaMotta so compelling, which was an open question as the film was being pursued and produced. I'd like even, you know, Andy Albeck, who was running United artists at the time that the film came out called him a cockroach called Jake LaMotta mm -hmm. a cockroach. he did not um have much of a public uh, reputation in, in a positive light people thought he was scum and that he was out and that he was down it's like why would you make a movie about this guy mm -hmm. and I think that much of what you're getting at there is sort of Scorsese's connection to the character is this person who um no one really knew because he didn't know himself. And what people knew were these different personas that he wore and this violence that he wore. And I think that you you get a lot out of this movie when you think about how it is a movie about men measuring themselves by the violence they inflict. Mm -hmm. And and that is something that, you know, he is, um, you don't really see it directly in the film because it's more up close and psychological than that, but his career, all of his wealth and success is directly tied to how many times he took that punishment. And mm. these are the rewards he has. You see that shot where he has this beautiful house, he has a Cadillac, he has a wife, he has kids. But then by that same token, this character that we're watching who destroys everything that he encounters, that's all gone. Within 10 yeah. minutes, you seeing it. Within, I think it's even the next scene he's getting arrested and thrown in jail. Like he is um, he's unable to hold on to what this media cycle tells him are the justifications for doing this kind of work, this kind of performance. And I think that that's where we find him, where we see the stand-up comedian Jake is this guy who he doesn't really know what to do other than just kind of rage in whatever venue is available about the strangeness of, of where he's ended up. Because in his mind, there's almost an are you not entertained sort of Yeah, exactly. Jake LaMotta. And he, I, I just don't think that he ever gets it. I don't think that he gets it really until that moment at the end of the movie where he looks at the mirror and looks at himself. And there's that moment where he just seem, seems like he has reached some sort of resolution, if not, any kind of, um, if, if not any kind of salvation, if not any kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, redemption? He, redemption, yeah, exactly. He hasn't found that, but he's found some sort of peace with the person that he is. And I think that that moment where he looks in the mirror is really one of the first times that you actually see Jake in that moment of of stillness and exactly actually existing in the life that he has and not constantly straining for some sort of obsession or some sort of jealousy or some sort of entitlement that he believes 
um, will clue him into who he actually is. But there, it, it's a very lonely movie. I think that's the other thing about Raging Bull that really makes it memorable for me in Scorsese's work is the degree to which this is a devastatingly lonely movie about a guy who is always fighting himself. So much so that he can never see anyone who is in front of him, let alone his opponents in the ring. Is this idea of the persona, right? And I, what's just so interesting about this film is Jake understands himself to be an entertainer, even to the point where he has to throw his first match. He's so comically throwing the match. Like in that scene, there is no black or white of he's throwing the match. He barely puts his hands up. It is so clearly almost him telling the audience, hey, I'm throwing this match and like I'm getting fucked here. Like yeah. that is essentially it. And he's almost doing it one as a way for maybe to his way, like see it as the audience being like, hey, just know like I don't want to be doing this, but I'm being forced to do this. Like I don't want you guys to think I'm some sort of wolves. Like, I need you to know that I'm just getting beaten up here for your amusement and that they are making me do that. Like, it's such, and it's the part that Joey, his brother, just con confronts him about that. He's like, you couldn't have at least put your hands up or like thrown a few jabs. And it's the thing, it's this character of Jake. He's just, he can't do that. It is so self-inherent for him not to, if he throws a punch, he's going to throw a punch as hard as he can. And there's this moment of it, there's this idea that you spoke of the, a lonely movie it's so fascinating when you juxtapose it with taxi driver which is truly a man who is isolated versus raging man uh raging bull sorry raging bull which is a movie about a man who actually has what should in theory be a support system and people who love him that he self-isolates from it is the exact same idea where eventually they both do find themselves in the same place isolation it's mm -hmm. just that one only new isolation by existence where the other one self-isolated himself. It's just a, it's the parallels of those two. And it's the ideas of, and I think it's the incredibleness of having collaborators working these two movies together in De Niro, in uh, Schrader, in Scorsese. It's just so endlessly rewarding to explore those ideas. And I think we actually, I, I've done not a great job of exploring the female characters of this movie and they are quintessential. Talk about there too. Kathy, yeah. Moriarty. Kathy Moriarty as Vicky, uh, Jake's second wife. And to a lesser degree, we do see uh, Teresa Saldana as Lenora, who is Joey's uh, wife in this movie. This film really does focus. And I, sorry, real quick, we should also just mention Lori Ann Flax, who plays Irma, Jake's first wife. We only see yeah. her in a. You want your steak? <laughs> that's an incredible scene, the steak yeah. scene. It's yeah. such a key scene also to just understanding this movie, which is all yeah. you need to know about him is this isn't something that just came out of him. This was how he treated all women in this movie. And oh, it is no. Yeah. It is no mistake that Jake and Vicky start getting together when she's 15. Because mm -hmm. in Jake's mind he has even more power because she's underage mm. it's it's a kathy moriarty in this film uh playing vicky who i believe she is 19 when this movie is shot I think uh, that's mm -hmm. it's an incredible performance and it's an incredible performance of restraint because everyone around her is to a degree a lunatic they're all raging they're all joe pesci screaming 
everyone is so loud, even to some of the supporting performances from uh, Nicholas Cosanta uh, as uh, Tommy, like, and even Frank Vincent as uh, Salvi. I, I cannot pronounce his name, Salvi. Yeah. They're all kind of, you know, so big in their performances. Vicky LaMotta by design cannot be big, and she takes ownership of that role and is able to just approach this with a she's not a typical character in these dramas uh, i should say like this is not a standard biography wife or even like a standard case of abuse she is far more interested in just how she contains herself and how she reacts often here mm-hmm I think containment is a big part of it to to pick up on that part of what you just said. I, I think like the great thing about that character of Vicky, um, you're right that she is younger, that she is impressionable, that she is in many ways sort of just led into this marriage with Jake. Um, but she's fighting him in her own way every step of the way. Mm. It, throughout the movie, she's always in her own sort of manner that she can accommodate she is trying to maneuver around jake she's trying to avoid the worst of his violence to curb it in certain elements and eventually to protect her kids she's really you know moving around him and exhibiting extraordinary bravery um extraordinary restraint um and almost you know a saintly element i would say which is something that I think I associate with that character a lot because of how connected she is to water. You see her in that opening scene where she's dipping her feet in the pool water. And it's this almost like abstract image of just those feet uh, moving in and out. And similarly, she is just, you know, throughout the film, I think, you know, in either in the rain or just uh, in some ways kind of tied to that idea as if she represents this kind of rebirth or this kind of life that Jake can't really appreciate. Uh, He can't see, it's implied that he can't satisfy her sexually, uh, which is where I think a lot of the jealousy of that character comes from, the sense that um, he knows on a certain level that he's failing his wife um, and that maybe she should be stepping out on him and whether she is or not, like that, agonizes Jake it it drives him insane and and she becomes by the end of the film this symbol of the life that could have been she's been there and he has used and abused her at different points in time but in that moment where she sees him in the parking lot and she's in the car and he tries to talk to her and she has the window mostly up and he sticks his hand in to try to reach her as she's I'm leaving you I'm getting a divorce. I'm going to have the kids. If you come by, I'm going to scream. Like, you know, she's just completely done with him. She's so powerful in that scene and in that moment. And it's just this brutal moment of the hands that he he can't reach her anymore. I think there's so much in this movie. I I know that Scorsese was a student of Brisson as well. And so there's a lot of hand imagery across his films. but in Raging Bull, especially, like he, it's just this idea of the broken hand 
this guy who yeah. just he can't reach anyone else and he just is so bent on destroying the instruments that would allow him to do that to reach anyone else and so i think that uh she plays beautifully off of him and of course her hands are gorgeous and perfect and she's just this angelic figure in the movie throughout it yeah and we have to start wrapping up this show but there were a few points that i wanted to just like bring up with you specifically in this character of vicky and that aspect that you brought up at the end where she eventually leaves him this performance is so fascinating and great to me like great with a capital g is because yes her character starts off as 15 versus a much older jake by the time they are married and it's a few years in you feel her maturity far more than jake Mm. feels his like you feel that she now has control of this and she knows who this person is and she also knows how to push his buttons the as best as she can it is a performance of resilience in many ways because this is a woman who is never content with what is going on but is always to some degree by halfway through the film you do feel like she is looking for exits and how best to almost get out and there's Mm -hmm. that frightening like the quintessential raging bull moment never happens in the ring it happens when jake breaks down the door when they're fighting and it's i think it's the most devastating scene in this movie is this shot of them having the fight he slaps her real quick he's in his boxers and she locks herself in the bathroom and jake just bursts through nothing it doesn't feel like it was anything for him he just walks through that door like a monster Mm. starts hitting her and then just for the second raises his fist in the air almost you know saying like i have the power whatever power you thought you had in this relationship right now i'm stripping that of you and i want you to know that i have the power to kill you and then that rage eventually gets pushed to pesci when he goes over when he confronts his brother and they have the fallout believing that her sarcastic remark that was so clearly sarcastic is true and that joey really did sleep with jake's wife and it's such a harrowing devastating brutal scene and it's the sum of it it is the sum of jake is this person who cannot control anything and he cannot think he is not rational and it is that moment where everything falls apart for him it is that where he breaks down and has nothing left and we get to the ending of this movie which is extremely powerful where he's quoting marlon brando's uh uh in the waterfront is it in the waterfront i'm is on that the, the title out of on the waterfront he's quoting the i could have been a contender all of that and it cuts to which is something lamada lamada did that as well like that was right out of the biography was quoting marlon brando um, it's, the, yeah. it's the moment he kind of essentially realizes he is a has-been and he's a hack like he is there to be a jester because the public persona of him now is look at this guy who once was a great boxer and look how fat and ugly he's become and how pathetic he is like that is and it's him embracing that moment is kind of the end of the film and it ends with this devastating card which is actually highly debated i don't know if you knew this it was highly debated between scorsese and schrader schrader does not like the end part of this the Mm -hmm. I believe it's second John. No, what is first John? I think it's first John. The I think uh, it's 
which one is it? Fourth. Fourth one? Okay. It's essentially the line of, I was blind, but now I see. Or again, I don't know my biblical references that well, but it's something along those lines. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Schrader mm-hmm. thinks that ending's too optimistic. And Scorsese did. And that's kind of where this movie wraps itself. I don't want to keep you over. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, just kind of wrap up that. Do you have any last thoughts on Raging Bull? Oh, um, I, I think on that um, card, the idea of that character, I mean, the, the whole myth that they're sort of relaying in that is of that sort of that idea of, of once I was blind and now I can see of just kind of understanding who you are. And that's why I think earlier I was drawing that line between resolution and redemption, because I don't think that there's any redemption for Jake LaMotta, but I, I agree. Do, but I think that there's a resolution there. I think that there is a kind of peace and a kind of acceptance of who he is. And I think that the saddest part of that is that he his acceptance is of the role. His acceptance is not of some inner clarity that will resolve his violence. It is of a mask that he can wear that justifies it to him. And it leaves him alone um, and horrifically lonely. But it just, I, I think that there is something to that new understanding that he reaches that is also very key to this film, because I think this is a very much a cautionary tale about someone who is consumed by their violence and defined by it and cannot find a way through. And and there is just, I, I understand why Schrader would not be a fan of that card. I think he would find it to be a little bit too leading. I think mm. Schrader doesn't want to draw lines to specific um religiosities but i think that the spiritual dimension of his characters is very internal but also just imposed by what that internal compass gives them as a sense of the world so i could see his side of it where you're giving people a direct line but the reason i like that that card is just because i think it gives you a different insight into the movie than you might have if you're just watching it. It's not the only insight. It's not the only way to look at the story, but it's certainly one path that you could argue that he takes is actually yeah. towards um, the kind of peace that a man like that has, which is a- another delusion, but at least one that he doesn't have to share with anyone else. It's just the way that he looks at himself. Um, but that... That last that last scene, I think, is, is remarkable. I don't think that we've talked much about the cinematography of the film. Uh, there's so yeah, much which... of this film, but like just briefly on that, I just think that Michael Chapman's work on this film is awe-inspiring. I think he had he made it such a gorgeous, lasting film. You just watched it on 4K this morning. I watched it again recently as well, and it's yeah i mean what a what a release what a visually stunning film and what a dimension of classicism that black and white lens gives this story i think that if it had been shot in color we might not be talking about it right now in in this way i think that there's a degree to which the way that raging bull looks 
compounds the elemental nature of the story that it's telling and it clarifies that for the audience you can really see um an expressivity especially in that final fight oh my god it's happening and creed 3 recently ripped it off but it's just like you know doing the that final scene in this completely abstracted realm because that's all it is for him it's, it's just this place that he goes almost inside his head when he fights and i think that the way that the film looks is so key to finding that psychological insight. So that's my last, I think, comment that I would make. And also, of course, just RIP Robbie Robertson, because yeah, and another great collaborator who was involved with the film and gave it such a sense of place through the songs that they chose. Last one real quick. Thelma's editing in this movie, especially in the fight sequences, are exceptional. I mean, just some of her best work, some of her most visceral work it's a just a pretty stunning film through and through and it also just to speak on the colors the few moments where we actually see color in the film uh, there's a montage briefly of them all getting married the kind of to some degree maybe the happiest of the years that we see in raging bull it's served so brilliantly in juxtaposition of black and white uh so that's really my thoughts on raging bull so Isaac, questions to end this show. We have three. They're the same each time. One's actually slightly adjusted uh, for you specifically, but the first two questions tied in are who is an actor who has passed away that you would have loved to see work with Scorsese and who is an actor still living that you would love to see collaborate with Scorsese? I would say for the actor who has passed, um, the great Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, I always want to see more Philip Seymour Hoffman performances and mm -hmm. the idea of him working with Scorsese, especially even the Scorsese of the Raging Bull era that we're talking about, I think that would have been seismic. I think that, you know, talk about two guys who understand gravitas better than really anyone. Um, I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman a lot, so he would be my choice for the deceased actor um, who I would have loved to have seen work with Scorsese. And as for uh, current day uh, people who I think could really do remarkably well in a Scorsese film, um, you know, it, it's funny. I would love to see whether Jake Gyllenhaal has the stones. I, I would love to see whether or not his sort of transformative performance style could be directed towards something as potent as De Niro's was throughout these collaborations with Scorsese. And I, I love Nightcrawler. I'm not saying anything bad about Dan Gilroy, but I think that Scorsese has that sort of um, the fire and brimstone that could justify that kind of transformation a bit better. So at first blush, that would be who I would say is Jake Gyllenhaal. And Gyllenhaal's already done that in the sense that he did Southpaw, so we know he can put on the weight of a boxer and look That's the true. part. It's mm -hmm. just Southpaw was, at least in my opinion, a, at best, decent movie, where belief yeah. of Scorsese doing a movie. I actually kind of went the same way in approach, where it was just like, who could have been in Raging Bull at some point in their life? And it is just kind of the lazy answer to some degree, but it's like, and I don't think it's ever happened, at the very least that I'm aware of, it's like, okay, yeah, we at some point, could Marlon Brando have just done it? Like, could he have played this Jake-type character? And it's, the answer is, well, yes, because he's already done a film similar to that, which literally is echoed in Raging Bull word for word, which we already talked about. 
So mm-hmm. a little bit of an easy answer. I didn't have a great name. I, my original name, I will say, was Peter Boyle of Everybody Loves Raymond fame. Totally forgot okay. he's in Taxi Driver. Legitimately yep. forgot he's in Taxi Driver. So I looked that up. I'm like, well, I got to pivot. Yeah. Uh, the second name, I was actually, I think the, uh, sorry, the Pesci casting is a little harder than I was uh, expecting. And I w- was like, I need someone who can play a little bit funny who can kind of have the temper but can hold it in but is so good at holding in anger and it probably popped up because at 5 50 a.m when i woke up right before watching raging bull i went on tiktok real quick and a bill Burr clip came up of mm. him in the king uh the king of staten island where he mm-hmm. plays the firefighting and it's the scene right. where he's just raging at pete davidson and he's yelling at the kid like oh, the strange walk where you're walking both ways and i'm like Burr is such an interestingly good dramatic actor in the limited roles that you've seen him in, whether it's Breaking Bad, Mandalorian. I think he'd be great in a role like this. Mm. Uh, So those are my two. Uh, And then the last question, we changed this uh, for something that we might be working on down the lines, but instead of top five Scorsese, top five De Niro performances. That is so tough. It is an impossible list. And so I don't tough. feel confident in mine. I, okay. I'm just going to go through them. I think that I've got to go with Raging Bull, number one. Yeah, I, I, that's where my consensus is leading me to. And number two, King of Comedy. That's also my number two. We'll see if we line up. Uh, number three, I would say Heat. I, I, I'm still kind of working on my list. I think Heat is on my short list. I think it's like six or seven for me right now. Um, I would say Mean Streets. Mm. For four. For me, I love that movie. I know it's like one of those lesser loved Scorsese films, but I think the authenticity of what they do there and at the same time, the iconography that they evoke, I think... It's some of his most towering work and some of Scorsese's most towering work. It's just like this. I, I think that movie will be reappraised again and again and again. Um, it's also 50 years old, I believe, this year. So there's yes, that. Yes, and it's having its uh, Criterion release. That's right. That's uh, right. And I think November. Yeah. Cannot wait for that. Yeah, um, no, that's an instant buy 4K on that. Incredible. And then five is so funny because I like... There, he's just like one of the greats. Like I, I could say The Godfather Part Two here. I could say Taxi Driver. I could say Goodfellas, Casino, Deer Hunter. I could say all of these movies that he is just sensational in. But I'm gonna go maybe a bit sacrilegious, maybe a bit jumping the gun, and I'm gonna say Number Five, The Irishman, because I think that his performance mm. there is I, yeah. so key to why that movie worked for me i know it does not work for everyone but Mm. i think that it's also a fascinating comparison of the real weight he gained for raging bull and the more digital prosthetics that he employed for the irishman but i think he understands how to carry himself in each of those eras in a way that very few actors know how to respond to that kind of digital interference with their appearance i i'm so mad at myself that i didn't to even throw in the Irishman on my honorable mentions. I was, I'm looking at it and I'm like, 
The issue with this list is this could easily be top five Scorsese De Niro performances, and it would probably yeah. align with top five Scorsese, or sorry, De Niro performances as well. At this moment, I agree with you. I have Raging Bull at number one. I have Rupert Pupkin from King of Comedy at number two. Number three, I am going to put Travis Bickle on there. I think that performance is astonishing. Uh, and the more I've rewatched it, the more I've just love what he has achieved. And I'm recording that podcast actually in the next few days. So I've been rewatching that one. Uh, as much as I've only watched Raging Bull once this time in preparation, I've now watched Taxi Driver three or four times, which maybe says about uh, a lot about me currently. Uh, so Taxi Driver is my three. I think I have Godfather Part Two at number four. I think that performance is, especially for basically one of his earliest performances, is astonishing. And the fact that he is able to make his own character that Marlon Brando already made famous and does Mm-hmm. A new interpretation of it is something incredible. My honorable mentions were Heat, Midnight Run, and I'm either going Untouchables or Irishman at number five. I think Untouchables is the first moment I ever saw De Niro, hmm. and I already have a lot of Scorsese representation on this list. So I'm going to go Brian De Palma's bloody, maybe a little bit of messy masterpiece, The Untouchables, where he plays Al Capone. Yeah. No, uh, so that's great movie. Yeah, view. great movie. So that's my top five. Isaac, thank you so much for joining me. We could have obviously talked much longer about this movie and probably every film in Scorsese's filmography. I just wanted to give you a second before we left to plug yourself, let people know where they can find you. Thank you. Um, wow, that's actually kind of a tough question right now, given the recent. Um, can I still call it Twitter? I think I can still call it Twitter. If you um, type in on your phone, Twitter, yeah. it will still pop up as X. Yeah, that's funny. I, I actually have not upgraded the app, so it still has Twitter for me. Is that true? I'm going to hold out as long as I can, see if I can outlast Musk. But um, my name is Isaac Feldberg. Thank you again for listening to us. This was great for me, too. I, I really enjoyed talking Raging Bull. And Ben, thank you for having me. Uh, I write for many of the fine outlets that Ben had mentioned at the top of the hour, uh, including RogerEbert.com, The Playlist, Pace Magazine, Filmmaker Magazine. Uh, But you can follow all of my work on Twitter slash X slash whatever the Musk show, whatever that is, at, at Isaac Feldberg. And I try to be diligent about sharing everything out there. Perfect. Thank you all for listening. Isaac, thank you for joining me for this episode of Raging Bull. We will be back tomorrow with the 1982, and I'll fully admit it, one of my favorites of Scorsese's, The King of Comedy, with my dear friend Brian Rowe joining me for that episode. Thank you all for watching. Take care, and bye-bye.